at writers love analogies and at the speech right of the first national speakers convention I was at four years ago in Atlanta there was a very well known um, in the in the world of speech writing, a lady called Marilyn Mobley. She now works for a PR agency called Edelman. But over the course of her career, she's written speeches for the CEO at IBM. She's, I mean, her resume is very impressive. She's from the South, and um, she gave a presentation on speech writing. It's one of the only ones I've seen at the NSA, at the National Speakers Association. And she used, uh, being from the South, she said at the beginning of uh, this presentation that she loved analogies of, to uh, country music. Now, the only one I remember from four years ago, so she used the titles of different country songs to illustrate different aspects of speech writing. And, and actually, it was a great presentation. The only one I can remember right now is the song Stand By Your Man. You know, stand by your man. And, and that, she said, that is what a speechwriter needs to do with their CEO or the executive or writing. You always need to be loyal to them, you know, stand by the, the person you're writing for. You obviously see that in the political world. Usually, the speechwriters are, are loyal and so on. Um, I don't have any knowledge of country music. Um, coming from England, I, I'm from a different background, but maybe it's too intellectual that I'm going to try this on for size today. So I need an analogy for, because I don't just want to list a list of boring things that writers do, like you research the topic and you make sure you check your facts. I mean, these are things I'll, I'll be talking about. But I thought for an analogy, I'd go back in time to medieval England. To the, to the era of Chaucer, you know, the Canterbury Tales, or if that's too intellectual, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So this is the time of, you know, the king and the peasants, the black knights, you know, the barons and so on, and the Dark Ages. So the question is, what, what on earth do the Dark Ages have in common with today? I mean, the Dark Ages were a time when literacy was at an all-time low, when over half the population had never traveled outside the country because they didn't have a passport. When people loved spectacle, I mean, I can't imagine what it's got in common with today. Um, in the 14th century, they had mummers, mystery plays, jousting and feasting. Maybe today we've got Madonna, reality TV, and still got lots of feasting. Um, in the 14th century, the king and the court gave speeches and they gathered in the town square when the town crier would go, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. Today, people gathering conferences and senior executives the kings of industry give, give speeches. Um, in the 14th century, they had bear baiting. Today, we've got presidential elections. But generally, I think the 14th century, the king and the court, to my mind, having spent 20 years in corporate America, have been a speechwriter for people like Scott McNeely at Sun Microsystems, Jonathan Schwartz, some of the executive vice presidents at companies like Hewlett Packard. I believe in the corporate world, many, it's not stretching the analogy too much to see the CEO as the king. Or very rarely is there a queen, but sometimes Carly Fiorina is a queen. Uh, the executive vice presidents are the barons or the, or the, or the, uh, the lords who report to the king. The salespeople are obviously the knights. They ride out on their charges and conquer new territory. And then the people who labor in the cubicle farms, they're the serfs and the peasants. So, who is the speechwriter? What, what role does the speechwriter hold? Well, I would venture uh, there's going to be actually six or seven roles that the speechwriter holds in the medieval world. First of all is what you might know in the, in the courts, there's always a, what they call a motley fool or a jester. The Beatles, for instance, had a, in a great uh, album, A Magical Mystery Tour, talked about the fool on the hill. Day after day, alone on a hill, the man with the foolish grin is keeping perfectly still and relating to the people in the organization you might have to work with as a speechwriter, he never listens to them. He knows that they're the fools. They don't like him, the fool on the hill. 
He sees the sun going down and the eyes in his head see the world spinning round. Having been a speechwriter in large corporations, sometimes people don't like you. And sometimes you see the world spinning round and you've got to write that down. So the role of the fool, as you might know, you know, this is the guy, the court jester, the king. Usually there were, you know, sometimes in many, I know it's not politically correct to term this, today, but they were dwarfs, you know, they were people of limited stature, you've seen them in the movies, right? They would do cartwheels, they would entertain the king. And they had liberty to say to the king things that anybody else, if they said them, would be executed. So the, the role of the fool was to stand right behind the king's throne, and as the king was listening to the barons and the knights coming forward and presenting their proposals for the next crusade or the next you know, tithe that needs to be levied on the peasants, the fool would whisper in the king's ear and say, right, load of rubbish, no, no, you to, don't listen to that, it's too serious, you know, let, make them laugh, you know, you can't go out and talk about this tomorrow to the peasants, you bring some humour to it, you know, tell a story. Well, that's the role of the king, uh, of the speechwriter, as far as the CEO. It's to give a fresh perspective, to give a fresh point of view. Um, it's not to be... Um, taken lightly because if the king dislikes you then the next thing you hear is off with his head, you know, let's get another, another fool in here. And the barons and the knights, the EVPs and the, and, and the, and the organization, I'm talking here about corporate speech writing, I'll talk about other forms of speech writing in a minute, but the big money tends to be in, in the big companies. Um, you know, you've got to realize, in, I've been in staff meetings at the executive level where I'm the only person in the room who doesn't have at least 5,000 people reporting up through to them and a 500 to $2 billion to $8 billion goal for that quarter. So, you know, I mean, an EVP like Anne Livermore at HP has, I think, a $40 billion goal each year. So if you're in a meeting with her and Mark Hurd and they're talking about something, it's your job to say, well, actually, maybe you want to discuss it in this way rather than that way. You know, it's a role that you, you need to be comfortable with. Um, so, it's a serious, I mean, to, to be serious for a minute, um, a, a book, one, I'm going to quote a number of books, and this one is an excellent book called White House Ghosts uh, by Robert Schlesinger, who's the son of the famous uh, James Schlesinger, who was a speechwriter in the early days in the White House. And he quotes, um, uh, he quotes JFK's speechwriter, um, Ted Sorensen, who's one of the most famous speechwriters still living, um, who said that uh, the, the role of the speechwriting team in the White House and JFK, uh, John Kennedy's time, was to counter the diplomatic blandness issuing from the State Department. He said the, the, the recipe that the State Department bureaucrats seemed to use when they were presenting the president with content for present from, you know, addresses and presentations was to evidently take a handful of cliches, repeat them at five minute intervals, stir in the dough of the passive voice and garnish with self-serving rhetoric. So that would be what JFK was presented by his minions in the State Department. Very, 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 very similar to what happens in a modern corporation where the executive vice presidents, the engineering leads, the product managers take everything way serious, way down the, the stuff, you know, you heard recent, uh, on the press presenter talking about bullet points and facts and the boring, way, the bad way to do a beginning is just put in fact, eternity, fact, eternity. That's what executives are given by the people who work for them. Not that those people are bad people, but they just don't think you know, in a foolish way. They don't think of the audience, they think of their responsibilities. So the lessons for a speechwriter who's the kind of the fool or the jester in the, in the pack, if you like, is to um, step outside the corporate bureaucracy, to look at the topic with fresh eyes, to inject humor and tell stories. 
And audiences, of course, love that. Now, as Toastmasters, of course, you know all this. I mean, anybody who's done the CTM manual will have taken some of this to heart about, you know, um, structuring your speech to be entertaining, about keeping the audience in mind. Um, in a corporate setting, it's no different. In fact, I would venture that anybody who's been to Toastmasters meetings for six months probably knows more about giving a speech than, than the average senior executive who doesn't bother. By a show of hands, um, many of you... Well, I, I, for instance, am a member of the HP Toastmasters Club called Hilltop Toastmasters in Palo Alto, which is where I've been going for the last four years. I know many Toastmasters meet in corporations. Others of you meet outside of companies. For those who meet in corporations, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever seen a senior executive come to a Toastmasters meeting? One, two, three. So in, in the four years I was at Hewlett-Packard, I never once saw an executive vice president, a senior vice president, or even a vice president come to a Toastmasters meeting. And they're the people who are responsible for giving speeches or talks. I mean, we give talks, but money doesn't really ride on it. You know, they give talks and the stock price can go up or down 10%. So it's interesting. I find it fascinating that the tools and techniques and, and, and lessons that you can learn for, what, $30 or six months is the membership or something at Toastmasters are beyond or beneath these senior managers. Now, maybe, you know, it's politically difficult for them to walk into a room with some low-level reports and stutter and get the R counter to ding them and so on, but they can always go to clubs outside. And for all I know, you know, elsewhere in Palo Alto, there's Toastmasters clubs who are filled with senior executives. Maybe I'm missing the point there. But, but the, the point is, as a speechwriter, this is job security for me, because these guys don't know what they don't know. So I go to the NSA meeting, I go to Toastmasters, and I come back with some simple ticks tips from the CTM manual. But you have to, as the fool, have courage. You can't show any fear with these executives. So that's uh, one role that I think is relevant to being a speechwriter today that we could look back at medieval uh, times and see. The next role is a thousand miles from that. It's uh, in the medieval hierarchy. There was the court and the king and the castle, but there was, there was millions of peasants. And they were out in the villages, and they were plowing the fields and, and raising cattle and so on. So I thought of the plowman. The plowman, you know, we still have people who plow fields, but today they use, you know, huge, massive uh, combine harvester things. In those days, they used a horse, if they were lucky, and a plow, and, and it was very boring work. But, you know, you had a 10-acre field. Before you could plant it, you had to plow it. But the plowman spent, you know, day after endless day plowing tedious work up and down, up and down. And there's a lot of tedious work involved in speech writing. It's not glamorous, believe me. Um, you have to do endless research. You have to talk to subject matter experts, or in the training and development world, they're called SMEs or SMEs. It rhymes with please, SMEs. And the SMEs will come out of the woodwork with volumes and volumes and volumes of data that they say, you know, contain the information the executive needs for his next speech. But you can't just dump that in the speech. You have to plow it. You have to plow through it, literally. Uh, check the facts. You have to interview people. You have to gather information. It's very boring. The lessons are it's very boring, but you have to live with it. You know, it's part of the, it comes with the territory. Um, I believe firmly that you have to have systems in place. So I would, I mean, many, many of speechwriters who work in the large corporations, it's not, no rocket science, but you, you need some standard forms to, like checklists about, you know, have we checked with all, you know, marketing and legal and product management about the product that the executive is going to talk about. Um, 
have we contacted the conference organizer, you know, six to eight weeks ahead of time? I mean, imagine whoever put this conference on had to make sure that the room was booked and the refreshments were ready. Those are things that sometimes fall to the speechwriter, and I put those in the bucket of, you know, just basically it's plowing work. It's up and down, dividing. A good thing to do is divide up the tasks. So if you just looked at a 10-acre field and thought it's going to take me a week to plow this, you go crazy. But if you concentrate on the furrow and just get that done and then take a break, uh, you know, plowmen in medieval England, I think they used to take breaks, drink some ale, go back to plowing. And that's a good thing for a speechwriter as well. Um, so next, another role in medieval England would be the fisherman. And uh, this isn't an obvious one. You don't think of fishing as part of it. But in the medieval world, fish were a form of a source of protein. The... Um, the moats around the castle or the mill pond would be stocked with apparently carp was a delicacy. You know, they didn't have much uh, saltwater sea fish. Uh, and the role, if any of you have ever done any fishing, you know what that involves. You get your rod, you get your line, you bait your hook, you throw it in the water and you wait. And then a fish comes along and you hook the fish. And you're thinking, what's this got to do with speech writing? Um, one of my colleagues at Sun Microsystems talked about when, you, when you're planning a speech, in a larger group, in a larger organization, you, need, you don't have the information, right? You need to ask people around the com company to give you the data that you'll need to assemble the speech, to plow through it, and so on. And the way you do it is no secret in today's world. You send out emails, right? And you bait the hook by saying, oh, I'm doing research for Scott McNeely. Never say you're a speechwriter, because that spooks people. You just say, oh, I'm doing some research for the CEO, and that'll immediately get their attention, like, whoa, this landed in my email box. Um, and then, um, uh, you know, we'd please send me the latest data on the sales of the XYZ product. But you can't, like, wait till the night before the speech to send those out. You need to plan this as part of your strategy. And it's quite like fishing, except you've got, instead of one rod in the water, you've got, like, six or eight rods in the water, and then you wait for the fish to bite, you wait for the person to send you the information, you reel it in, and there's a nice slippery fact that you can slip into the speech. So, speech writing, a bit like fishing, you plan ahead, you're patient, and there's a lot of value in fishing for information. So moving right along, um, the next role in the medieval world is the miller. You know, the person who used to, before we got our bread from the supermarket, you know, wrapped up as wonder bread. First of all, you had the, um, the, uh, the peasants would grow the wheat in the fields, and then it would be milled, it would be ground into flour by the miller. You know, they'd have the mill wheel turning by the, by the water, and the guy would be covered in dust and uh, they'd separate the wheat from the chaff. Well again, going back to those SMEs, those subject matter experts in an organization, they will bring you sacks and sacks and sacks and sacks and sacks and sacks of data for the speech. If the executive is going to speak for 20 minutes and he's got four topics he wants to cover and there's four managers who are responsible for those topics, each manager will give you two hours worth of data. So you have to grind it down. It's like plowing, but you grind down that data. It's probably the biggest single value add of a corporate speechwriter. You edit ruthlessly, you throw 90% of it away. And this is something when you're creating your own speech as a Toastmaster, you might want to think of. You know, 90% of what you look at on the internet, I mean, today anybody can Google anything, but it's not a very good speech just to read facts from Google searches. So you, you keep those meal wheels turning and you throw data out. So, next, next role, who, who knows the Brothers Grimm? 
fairy tales. Okay, okay, you're starting for ten. We'll have a little quiz like last time. Who can tell me the name of the character in the Brothers Grimm fairy tales who imprisoned his daughter in a tower and made her spin gold all day? Rumpelstiltskin. Thank you. So, Rumpelstiltskin is my next character in medieval Europe. And actually, what that person, and I heard a speechwriter say this once at the National Speakers Association. She said, I'm like Rumpelstiltskin's daughter. I take their words and I sit in my room at night and spin them into gold and no one knows how I do it. And there's a mystery to speechwriting. People don't know. How did she do that? I mean, Toastmasters alone. People are impressed that you stand up here and you say what you say because 99% of the world's population don't want to stand here because they're terrified and everything else. So, it's, to my mind, this is kind of like the alchemist or the wizard or whatever you want to call it in the medieval world. You're practicing transmutation of common words into gold. And speak. Any Catholics in the room? You know about trans transmutation? Okay, so you study the texts. The secrets of it are you study the texts and the book of spells, which I'll share at the end. I've got some books of spells here for you, that the wizard needs to turn the dross of the average words into, into a speech. Okay, we're moving along because I'm getting low on time here because I've got some more concrete things. This, this endless trip through medieval Europe will come to an end. Um, this one I like, um, the speechwriter as a monk. Now, uh, again, a question, who knows what a, what a scriptorium is? A scriptorium. Yes? Place where the monks copy literature. Exactly. Yes, I'll define it from Wikipedia, which is a great place to find definitions. It's a place for writing, commonly used to refer to a room in a medieval European monastery devoted to the copying of manuscripts by monastic scribes. So before photocopying and before typewriters and word processors, they would have one copy of the Bible and they'd want to make others. They would, in the scriptorium, copy it over. Now they didn't just copy it, if you've, who's seen the Book of Kells for instance in Dublin or, or those illustrated manuscripts, you know, they take the letter, you know, like the first chapter, the first passage in the Bible, some Genesis, and that first letter is illustrated, you know, in golds and reds and blues. Well, obvious analogy today is PowerPoint. Right? So what the speechwriter has to do, and in corporate America it's, it's the fact of life, is you have to be familiar with PowerPoint because you have to illustrate the talk for the executive. Um, future archaeologists will probably wonder when they unearth the hard disks and look at the file cabinets, what was this civilization doing with these millions and millions and millions and millions of slides that don't actually say anything but have pictures and bullet points and so on. But corporate America, obviously it's, as Toastmasters you know, it's not the best and most interesting way to present, but corporate America loves it. So that's where the money is, you follow that. And to my mind, if you are into PowerPoint, and it's a very useful tool if it's used correctly, if you don't use the animations and the dancing paperclip and all the rest of it. And the two books I'll reference uh, that I think are the best single two books to come out in the last five years on PowerPoint, and I'll have these, by the way, on my website, as well as this presentation. I'm, I'm, I've got two microphones because I'm recording it for a podcast. So you go to my website, which is in the catalog, and you'll see this presentation with all this stuff about the monks and the fishermen and so on. So on, and the references. The first one is a book by Gar Reynolds called Presentation Zen. Yeah, we have a fan at the back. And Gar lives in Japan. He has a, a blog called Presentation Zen. And believe it or not, he makes PowerPoint just gorgeous. He does beautiful, like the last lady, she had very good slides. I don't know if they were PowerPoint or the, or the Mac version, but um, 
this is a wonderful book to start with. And then very recently, just in the last couple of months, um, Nancy Duarte, who runs an organization in uh, the peninsula called Duarte Design, has published Slideology. And Duarte Design are famous because they did the graphics for Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth. If you've seen that, it's a wonderful movie because it's whether you agree with, hopefully nobody left who doesn't agree that global warming is an issue, but you never know. Um, but even if you don't agree with that, it's worth seeing as a presenter or as a Toastmaster because it's a video of a presentation. So those are two resources that you use if you're illustrating the talk as a monk would. Um, the final one I've saved till last is the best, I think, role for a speechwriter. So the ones I've talked about up till now are when you really have to work either as a consultant or a full-time employee for corporate America, but as a full-time employee. But one of the most colorful characters in medieval era was the minstrel, the wandering minstrel or the poet. And they used to uh, travel the land, you know, they were free men, they weren't tied to the court, they weren't tied to one organization, they wooed the ladies, you know, they composed sonnets and madrigals, and that's like being a freelancer, which is what I do today. Um, and the trick here is quite simple, the lessons are, it, you have to niche yourself. If you want to be a speechwriter, you can't just write on everything. I write for high-tech executives, CEO-level high-tech executives. You have to work fast. You bill a flat amount, you know, like $3,000 for a speech. If you can do it in 10 hours, you get $300 an hour. If you do it in 30 hours, you only get $10 an hour. So it's your time is money. Uh, you attract clients with your reputation, and the better speechwriters in the world today tend to be freelance. So the guy who used to write Carly Fiorina's speeches is a guy called Richard Fly, who lives in Boston, and he, by reputation alone, has built a whole business writing for CEOs. There's another organization called West Wing Writers, who you might have guessed it worked in the White House at one point. So this is a place to aim for, but you have to be at the top of your game and, uh, and, and do that. So now I'm kind of putting medieval England behind us for a minute. Um, I will have another quiz question, having seen the last presenter, I've got all this interactive stuff. Um, who knows who John Favreau is? F-A-V-R-E-A-U. Yes? No. F-A-V-R-E-A-U, J-O-N-F-A-V-R-E-A-U, age 26. Yes! Who said that? Who's the person who shouted that out? Oh. Here, you can have, I, this is a spare copy of the book, Slideology. He, he wrote the, yes, he wrote the acceptance speech. Thank you very much. There you go, there's a spare copy of that book. So, um, John Favreau is an interesting character. He was profiled recently, he's, he's Obama's speechwriter. Now, as a speechwriter, I will write a speech for anybody. I'll write, you know, give me the money and I'm like a wind-up coin-operated speechwriter. However, if I was a political speechwriter, which I'm not because they don't get paid nothing. I mean, John Favreau works 20 hours a day and probably gets paid $30,000 a year, but hey, he gets to hang out with Barack all day and all night. Um, I would personally find it much more interesting to write speeches for Barack Obama than, say, Sarah Palin or George Bush. Um, I mean, you can only, you know, whatever the phrase is about a horse, you can only, like, take a horse to water or you can't make it drink. If you were a speechwriter for George Bush and he was using things like, I don't know how he used to mangle the language, you know, no matter what you'd written, he would probably say it backwards. But, you know, I'm not saying making a statement politically, Obama is very, very, very um, good. In fact, the Republicans say, oh, it's just words. Well, <laughs> 
Guess what politicians are meant to do? They're meant to say, you know, just words. That's what they're there for. Um, Hillary Clinton in the primaries had a, had a dig at Obama by saying, oh, he's just giving speeches. He's not putting, you know, food on the table and, and gas in people's tanks. So in my blog, I had a photograph of a woman pumping gas and another guy as a chef cooking up the meal. And I said, well, Hillary, as a, as a politician, you're meant to be speaking. They're meant to be pumping gas and they're meant to be working in short order cooks. You're meant to be using words. That's your job. And same goes for Sarah Palin and, and the others. So if you've got Barack as a, as a client, as John Favreau does, you've got, it's golden, right? Because he'll soar, you know, rhetorically, obviously politically as well at the moment. But what's interesting about this is, the guy's 26, and he's at the top of the tree. So it's very much speechwriting. You know, I'm 56, and I'm not going to ever be Barack Obama's speechwriter. I've been at this much longer than that guy has. You know, he was in diapers when I was starting. But what it points to is speechwriting is actually much similar, more similar at this level, at the rock star level, to being a, a poet or a musician. I mean, Bob Dylan, when he wrote Like a Rolling Stone in 1965, was 24 years old. I don't think he wrote anything as compelling when he was 56 years old. So I think I would venture that speech writing, it's not just a young man's profession, but it, to be, now I'm talking about inspirational speech writing that will you know, move mountains, that phrases that people will remember down through the ages. I would contrast that with the professional speech writing that I've been talking about, which is the miller and the fisherman and the grind. It's so, you know, executives in Silicon Valley don't want, they couldn't carry off what Barack Obama said in his acceptance speech. It would sound flat, it would, I mean, I don't think many politicians in the US today could. Um, but he's got that ability and his speechwriter measures up to that. Um, people like Ed Tate, for instance, obviously a wonderful speaker. Um, there's another champion uh, from Toastmasters from 1995, Mark L. Brown. And um, in the Bay Area, we are very blessed with a, a lady called Patricia Fripp. What these three speakers have in common, Ed Tate, Mark L. Brown, and Patricia Fripp, is they're all members of an organization which I mentioned called the National Speakers Association. And the National Speakers Association, for those of you who aren't aware of it, is a national organization that publishes a monthly magazine called Speaker, like you have the Toastmaster magazine. Um, we have a local chapter here in the Bay Area, which has also a magazine called Professionally Speaking. And uh, we only send this out to members, but anybody else can order it off the internet. It's print on demand. It's published by my old employer, Hewlett Packard, at print on demand rates. And um, if you want to check out Professionally Speaking, you go, sorry, check out the National Ma Magazine, go to the national website, nsaspeaker.org, and you can subscribe for $49 a year. If you want to buy a single copy of this, we've only done two editions so far, the summer and the fall, um, go to nsanc.org. That's National Speakers of Northern California, nsanc.org. So, um, just to um, conclude here in a second, what I did want to mention, and there's been uh, literature on the table out front all morning, is for those of you who wanted to become a member of the National Speakers Association, you have to give 20 paid speeches in one year. Now, you can be paid a dollar, right? I mean, somebody gives me a dollar at the end of the thing, that's paid, this is a paid speech. Or, or you have to make $25,000 in speaking, which if you're a rock star, you give one speech, they'll give you $25,000. It's, it's about the business of speaking. So Toastmasters, as I, as I said, we've got people like Ed Tate and Mark L. Brown who are Toastmasters and in NSA. Toastmasters is the place for platform and podium skills. 
NSA is the place if you want to take it to the next level and you want to make money at this. If you want to make either a full-time living or keep your day job and make a part-time living, check out NSA. And the timing on this, and I don't usually do long-winded commercials for NSA um, like this, but the timing is perfect because we have a, a program called ProTrack, which is a training program for the national speakers. And we have two ProTrack graduates in the room. Raise your hands. There you go. These guys took ProTrack a couple of years ago and could tell you about it. We're enrolling right now for the January class. It goes all year. It actually ends in November. The graduates from this year are graduating tonight. It's limited to 30 people. It's $1,900, but for that you get 11, eight, 11 full day meetings plus uh, focus groups plus uh, website plus individual coaching from people like Patricia Frick. So it's a, it's a pretty good deal. Um, so that said, if you want to check out this ProTrack, there's flyers on the table outside, um, and it would be great to come along. We have National Speakers Northern California meetings five times a year. The next one's January 10th, and then we have one in March. I forget the date, and the last one of the season is in May. Then we break for the summer. We have them in September, and that's all on our website, nsanc.org. This presentation will be on the web by Monday morning on my blog as an audio file with text all about the, if you love that analogy about the medieval era, you can borrow it from my website. I just very quickly, as, a, as, a, as I hope I've given some value for money here, but I haven't really gone into the nuts and bolts of speech writing, and that's basically because you can read it. I mean, there's nothing I couldn't tell you that isn't in, and I'll have these books on my website, Writing Great Speeches by Alan Perlman, P-E-R-L-M-A-N, Professional Techniques You Can Use. And frankly, it's you're going to look at this and think, well, we covered that in our Toastmasters meeting last month. I mean, there's not a whole lot beyond what you learn the CTM manual and the various, you know, uh, distinguished Toastmaster manuals that isn't, you know, there's no, like, secret well of knowledge that speechwriters use. It's practice makes perfect. Um, that there's, what I use these books for is if I'm up against the deadline and I'm stuck, like I had to do a short acceptance speech for a lady who got uh, honored as the... Um, uh, alumni of the year at Golden Gate University. It was a 10-minute speech, and she had to say, you know, thank you for the award, blah, blah, blah. Well, in this book, there's a little kind of cookbook, you know, it's like a recipe book. You can grab a certain technique of, you know, for, for that association, uh, for, that, for that presentation. This is a book that's uh, a little dated now. It's about 10 years old by a guy called James C. Humes, Speak like Churchill, stand like Lincoln. And James Humes was Nixon's speechwriter, but he wasn't the speechwriter who wrote about, you know, the, the Cho and Lai thing or, or, the, or Watergate. He was what, in every White House, there's what they call the Rose Garden speechwriter. And you Americans have this really weird political system where you combine the roles of head of state and political leader. In England, we separate them out. We've got Her Majesty to open, you know, hospital wings and, and greet visiting dignitaries, and then we have the Prime Minister who has to make the tax decisions and so on. You guys combine them into one. I mean, I'm an American citizen too, but anyway, James Humes wrote this book because uh, uh, he, he spent the years um, as Nixon's speechwriter, and Nixon famously introduced him once to the postmaster general, I guess, I don't know if they still have that position, but they had a postmaster general in the cabinet as, as his wordmaster general. He said, oh, here's my wordmaster general, so about James Humes. So speak like Churchill, stand like Lincoln. And the chapters, uh, the chapter headings say it all. Um, your power pause, your power opener, your power presence, your power brief, your power quote. 
so he talks about writing, I mean, the pause, you know, Toastmasters learn the value of, of pausing. Talking about power, this is a book from an Englishwoman, Susan St. Mauer, M-A-U-R, called Power Writing. And it's not just for speaking, but it's for any writing, business writing, about getting the message right. Um, one of my favorites, although I can't really use it in corporate America, by Thomas Leach is Say It Like Shakespeare, How to Give a Speech Like Hamlet. Now, this wouldn't go down well with a Scott McNeely, but it, you know, it, it's, it's fun and you can read uh, things. The best thing to do as a speechwriter, I find, though, is to listen to as many speeches as possible. So I've literally replayed Barack Obama's acceptance speech a half dozen times, read the transcript, and when you read the transcript, and you're a speechwriter, it's like an architect looking at this room and saying, oh yeah, okay, they got the air conditioning going around here. That's interesting. Oh yeah, they use the riser at six inch intervals. You can see the wordsmithing. You can, he, the way he uses the phrases, you know, in the first paragraph ends and the next word in the second paragraph is the third word from the end in the first paragraph, which is blah, 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 you know, bridging and so on. And, and you can listen to speeches. There's a book here called Speeches That Change the World and you can read about them, but by far the best thing is to listen to speeches, and I don't know, oh yes I did. Uh, so there's a free website, and it'll be on my website, but if you want to write it down now, it's www.americanrhetoric, all one word, americanrhetoric.com, and then there's a button on that for top 100 speeches, and you can download in MP3 the top, what they think are the top 100 speeches of all time. So that's a wonderful way as Toastmasters, you could download them, put, burn them to a CD, put them in your car, before you, you know, drive to work and back, you can listen to these, um, these great speeches from history. And frankly, I think that's probably the best single way. That's what I do if I get a contract as a, as a, as a contract speechwriter uh, to, um, to present uh, for a given company. I'll go on their website and try and download any and all speeches that, that person has has given in the past. So to conclude, um, I will have this on my blog, it's in my uh, bio and the thing. Uh, by Monday you can listen to the presentation over, tell all your friends about it, tell other people in the club who didn't come tonight, and thank you very much. <laughs>